By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Once again, our text begins with the words, by faith. Let, re let me remind you that this is a saving faith, not some kind of lesser faith. This is a faith by which a man lives to God, stands in righteousness before God, and so preserves his soul, to quote the last verse of chapter 10. And this next exemplar of saving faith is no ordinary believer. He is Abraham, who in Romans 4.11 is declared to be the father of all who believe. Galatians 3 affirms this, saying that those of faith are the sons of Abraham. And it also identifies Abraham as the man of faith. He is called all this in part because he is the greatest example of faith in the Old Testament. And this has three practical results for our study. And yes, this is all still introduction. First, this explains why more space is given to Abraham and his faith in Hebrews 11 than to any other person. You'll notice this sermon outline is entitled Abraham's Faith Part 1. Well, that's because there are at least three faith stories about Abraham in this chapter. Apparently, we have several lessons, not just a single one, to learn from this Abraham, our father. Secondly, this truth should lead us to expect that Abraham's life of faith illustrates the manner in which every believer comes to and lives by faith. Let me say that again. I know it's long. This should lead us to expect, if Abraham is our father in the faith, this should lead us to expect that his life of faith illustrates the manner in which every believer comes to faith and lives by faith. Because he's our spiritual father, we should expect that our spiritual lives are like his. Now you know that in scripture, children are often said to share the character of their father. And that is preeminently true in the spiritual realm. Jesus said in John 8 that the devil is the father of the wicked. Not biologically, of course. So in what sense? They shared his character. Jesus said they had a will to do the devil's evil desires. That's Jesus' language. They murdered and they lied. They didn't love Jesus Christ just like Satan murdered and lied and didn't love Jesus Christ. You see, they were children of their father, the devil. 
They inherited his character. But Jesus also said that Abraham's children do the works that Abraham did. Every believer, that's every son of Abraham, is like Abraham in his faith. He is the righteous one who lives by faith. And so we should look at Abraham's life of faith, not only as a true history, it is that. He experienced these things. These are not just fairy tales or stories. These are real life histories. He experienced it. But they are more than that. They are shared patterns found in the life of every one of Abraham's spiritual children. Abraham is your father, therefore you should expect that part of his life of faith is reflected in you. That's the second point. And thirdly, this helps us to see that the various aspects of faith that are pictured in the believers in Hebrews 11, well, they're all found in every person with saving faith. In other words, the saving faith of Abel isn't something fundamentally different from the saving faith of Enoch, or the saving faith of Noah, or the saving faith of Abraham. It's not as though saving faith in one person believes the word of God, but saving faith in another person obeys God, and in, and in another person, faith causes them to walk with God. No, all true believers possess to one degree or another all of these facets of faith. Now, it's true that these different facets of faith are highlighted in different men and women in their different stories. But ultimately, you must understand that this is one thing. It is saving faith. Not different kinds. Not different things. Not some saving and some non-saving. No, this is all what saving faith is. And all of that must be true if Abraham is the father of the faithful. Now this leads us to our first heading in our study about Abraham. If you're following the very simple outline inside the bulletin, it is simply this, Abraham's call, his call. Verse eight tells us that Abraham was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He didn't know where he was going. Now, Abraham lived east of the Euphrates River, which in most other cities, if I were preaching today, I would be quite certain none of you would know where that is, except I'm in a military town, and some of you have been in modern-day Iraq, and that's where the Euphrates is today, at least most of it. All right. So it's far away. He lived on the other side of that river in what is modern-day Iraq, then called Mesopotamia. And from there, God called him away, moving him from his home to an unknown location. Now, it's important to remember that at the time of his call, Abraham was a pagan. <laughs> he was just like his father, Terah, right? Fathers and sons share some similarities. We just said that. Well, here's another example. Terah was an idolater. So was Abraham. So was Abraham. 
Joshua 24 and verse 2 makes this plain. They all worshipped idols, and they all lived sinfully until one day God interrupted Abraham's life by calling out to him. Notice this call, according to our text, is initiated by God. He was called. He wasn't doing the calling. He was called. This is what we today call sovereign grace, right? This is a call initiated by God. Abraham is not, contrary to what you so often hear, you know, he was a religiously sensitive man. And, and he had certain gifts and graces that other men didn't have. And so he called upon God. Oh, no, no, no. God utterly denies that in his word here. Abraham didn't call to God. God called to Abraham so that Abraham could call to God. This is a divine disruption in Abraham's life. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you were great sinners before you were saved. And when people say, oh, I bet it was a relief to get saved. Well, yeah, but it also utterly destroyed your life, didn't it? You lost your family, your friends, maybe your job, and a whole bunch of other things. And it, it, it was an easy street. Well, that's what's happening here to Abraham. This is disruption. You see, what, what this verse illustrates is the beautiful Romans 5 phrase, but God. But God. Abraham's going along, but God. An idolater is living, following after his father, but God. Right? The God who, if the historical estimations are correct, at the time of Abraham, there were probably about 25 million people on the earth. And God calls this one. He calls to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, believe in me. Hear my word of promise and command and follow me wherever I tell you to go. This is the initiation of faith in Abraham. This is an effectual call. This is sovereign grace. And faith comes the same way to every true believer. It's rooted in the life-giving, efficacious call of regenerating grace. For make no mistake about it, this is not simply a call to a pagan to stay in his idolatry and go inherit a faraway land. That's not what this is a story of, right? No, this is a call to hear the word of God and to believe in him. This is a call saying in the language of verse 6, believe that I, the true God, exist and I reward those who seek me. This is a call not only to a foreign land, but ultimately to an eternal inheritance in God. This is a call to leave everything for God. This is the Old Testament equivalent of Jesus saying, 
if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In modern evangelical terms, this is Abraham's testimony. All right? This is when God saved him. When the God of heaven called down saying, believe in me and my word of promise. Now notice that this is a call not just to believe in the true God and gain an earthly inheritance. It's also a call to obedience. He was called to go out. He was called to action. His faith was required, not as an end all, but so that he would act, so that he would obey, so that he would live according to faith. So what did Abraham do? Well, this is our second point. Let's look at Abraham's response. We've seen his call, now his response. Here's what our verses say. By faith, Abraham obeyed, and he went out. By faith, he went out, he went to live in the land of promise. That's what he did. The man of faith obeyed. So Abraham both believed God and he obeyed God. Now, this should be very instructive for us. Here's where Father Abraham is going to be our teacher again. There'll be parallels for our spiritual life. Here are four, quickly. The first, notice his faith led him to obedience. Abraham's faith led him to obedience. You see, this is not a description of Abraham's obedience as if it were some kind of human self-sufficiency. This is not the raw willpower of a man of self-control, Abraham. No. This is not the dead works of the motivational speaker or self-help gospel. No, this is the active response of obedience rooted in God-implanted faith. This is loving God out of a new heart. And the chapter constantly presses this lesson on us. Some of you may already be saying, and trust me, it gets worse in the next few minutes in the sermon, right? Some of you may be saying, oh, he's on obedience again. He said the O word again. I'm so tired of it. Well, the problem is that's what's in our chapter. That's what in our chapter faith leads to. This is how we know the difference between true faith, saving faith, and a false faith. That's the way. It's not the only way, but it's the major way. And it's the way in this chapter. And so my job is to keep telling you that. Just like we seemed like we were stuck on the work of Christ for a while in Hebrews, and then we kind of got stuck on covenants for a while. Well, now we're stuck on faith and obedience. And that's because God wants us to thoroughly learn this. Faith, this chapter teaches us, is never purely mental. It's not just an academic exercise. It always leads to active obedience. Always. I didn't say perfect obedience. But real obedience, substantive obedience. Real, God-pleasing, God-defined obedience. 
That's the first one. His faith led him to obedience. Secondly, his obedience was immediate. You might get this impression if you carefully read the English translation. Abraham obeyed when he was called. Now, one way to interpret that would say, well, it sounds to me like that means that as soon as Abraham heard God, he began to obey. It was almost as if uh, God is speaking and Abraham starts to hear it, and for the part he's heard, he's already obeying. And that's exactly what the Greek is trying to tell us. That's exactly the right idea. Abraham immediately obeyed. He left right away. He didn't say, you know, I need to bury my father. He didn't say, you know, I got a piece of land over there I got to look at first. He left. He left. There was no delay in his response to God's call. And true faith should ordinarily lead to decisive action as our father in the faith exemplifies. Thirdly, his faith and obedience continued. He not only obeyed God at the beginning of the journey, but all the way through it. All the many, many long, weary decades of it, he obeyed. His faith and obedience preserved, was preserved in Haran and Canaan and then down in Egypt and then back in many other places in Canaan again. In all of his pilgrimage, he continued to follow God's call. He believed and he obeyed. And he did this his whole life. That, again, is instructive for us. Well, fourthly, his faith had partial knowledge. That's the fourth response. His faith had partial knowledge. I simply want you to recognize from the story that God didn't tell Abraham everything up front. God told him to go. So he got ready and started walking. But the destination was unknown. God told him enough that he could rightly obey him. But he didn't have the complete picture. He certainly was not told everything at the beginning. So Abraham's faith, what, had to continue to trust that God's initial promise was still true and that it would be followed with further words of instruction. What God did in in giving him the information at the beginning was enough for him to go. And he obeyed. He needed to obey, and he did. But more would follow. And Abraham's faith accepted that. Believed that. Functioned with that. Obeyed with that. So Abraham's faith and obedience led him to the land of promise, to his inheritance. But he lived a migratory life. The word for lived in here. We can translate it live, but it, it's about someone who just who, who traipses around all the time, who's a migrant. That's what he was. He never settled down. He constantly moved. The biblical writers want us to know that by saying he lived in tents. Uh, 
didn't sink pillars down, didn't build a permanent home. He lived in tents. Right. He's constantly on the move. He never settled. Indeed, until his wife died, he didn't even own the slightest bit of land. And he needed to buy that so he could bury her. So here's the question. How is this an inheritance? Some promise. You promised me this, I, I don't have it. Right? That, that might be how we would respond. I mean, how could Abraham continue to believe God when the goal just seemed to always be in the future? How could he do that? I mean, he was always, his entire life, he was a stranger and a foreigner. Nothing but a nomadic wanderer. His life was unsettled. How could his heart be so settled in God? What was his secret? Well, for the answer to that, we move to our third point. This is Abraham's thinking. This is about the content of his faith. What did he know? What did he believe? So that he acted in a right way, responding to God's promises. This is found in verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This was the faith-filled thinking of Abraham. He actually understood that the promised inheritance, this land that we today call Israel, back then called Canaan, sometimes called Palestine, wasn't the ultimate promise. He understood that the promised inheritance was heaven. <laughs> or if you prefer, and I do, the new heavens and new earth. Canaan was part of the promise, but it wasn't the whole scope of the promise. Abraham's inheritance wasn't only a land for his many physical descendants. It was also salvation for his spiritual believing dependence. That's really important to grab hold on. Remember, this call was to go out as a believer. This wasn't just to leave Mesopotamia and go to Canaan. It was a call to leave idolatry and serve the one true God. It was a call to faith. It was a call to eternal life. And this call, therefore, could not be completed on the earth. If he was to gain full salvation, there had to be more in the promise than Canaan. So Abram's ultimate promised land wasn't Canaan. It was the city of God. It was not some future earthly Hebrew Jerusalem. It was the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, how do we know this? Pastor Ron, it sounds like your, your covenant theology is kind of sneaking through on your interpretation here. Yeah, it is. But I think why it should is because what our verse plainly teaches, right on the face of it. Okay? The verse says that Abraham knew this and believed in heaven, if you will. The verse doesn't say 
that we as New Covenant Christians understand that that's what the promise really meant. It doesn't say that. It says Abraham understood that. It's funny. Lots of Christians today don't understand that that's what that promise was for. Abraham has it better than they do. Had it better. He knew about it. He looked forward to God's permanent city, and he believed. His faith rested in the revealed content of eternal life and heaven. Now, if that seems a little bit of a stretch, you know, there are other indications in, this early, in these early chapters of the Bible, in some of these stories, that he wasn't the only one who knew this. I mean, think about Enoch. Didn't his rapture point to a reality beyond this life? I mean, if he didn't die and he's taken somewhere and somewhere better to, to be with God, what? that's heaven. Enoch understood heaven. Or what about Job, who seems to have lived at about the same time? Well, clearly from our reading today, he understood about the resurrection and a future life with God in a physical place. So why wouldn't or couldn't Abraham know this? Well, he did. And we know this because Scripture tells us that he realized even if on the altar he put Isaac to death, God could raise him from the dead. Abraham knew all this. He believed all this. This is part of the content that God had given to him, and he believed it. This is the content of his faith. And, of course, even just the idea, if we didn't have any of these indications... Just the idea of the promise of salvation in God mean, means that there must be a continuing life in God for ourselves. We must go beyond this time and place. So again, it's entirely reasonable that Abraham knew about the eternal city. And so his faith accepted it and he rested in it even as he longed for it. Now let me give you just three short uses and we'll be done. The first, and I hope, I hope none of these are surprises. I hope you know where we've been going. Right? The first one. The Christian life is one of pilgrimage. The Christian life is one of pilgrimage. Indeed, the true Christian life always begins by the person becoming homeless. Every newly regenerate person has lost their home in every case <laughs> because their home was in the world. And God has said, no, no, you're done with this world. I have something better for you. And yes, you will stay here for a while. You'll be in it, but not of it. But you'll be traveling to a better city, a city of which... I'm the architect, I'm the builder, a permanent city, a city with foundations, a city that will never be dissolved. So when God calls us to spiritual life, he sets us on a journey to our true home, to heaven, to himself, just like Abraham. He promises us an eternal inheritance and he not only promises us heaven, he commands us to leave this world. 
That is our old way of life when we lived in sin. And so for however long we live in this world, after being called by God, that is wandering. That's pilgrimage. And we look forward to our permanent home. Think about this. I was really refreshed by this, realizing this. We're going to live in the same city as Abraham. He's going to be our neighbor, as well as all the other saints. One of the early reformers uh, got this right. They put this in a way we don't normally hear in our day and age. Um, Jacques Lefebvre put it this way. To be with Christ is to be in the land promised to the fathers. Oh, that's, that's scriptural, that's beautiful, it's pithy, that's great. To be with Christ, you know, at the end of all things, when we're with Christ, that's to be in the land promised to the fathers. That's where Abraham was traveling to. That's where Enoch was translated to. That place. That heaven. So you might say, right now, we live in Canaan. Or if we were to go to the book of Revelation, we live in Babylon. Right? We are no longer citizens, ultimately, in this world. Instead, we are traveling to where our citizenship lies, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so my simple question to all of us is this. Do we live like this? Do we believe God? And do we act like we believe God? Where is your heart set? Canaan? Or the heavenly Jerusalem? Where do your hopes lie? Babylon? Or the heavenly Jerusalem? Is your life spent trying to cement your tent pegs into the ground? Or are you longing for a better city? <laughs> Where are your monies and energies spent? What consumes your thought? Is your life oriented to the present or to the future? The answers to these kinds of questions can be telling. Why? Because the Christian life is one of pilgrimage. And if you're not on a pilgrimage, you're not a Christian. It's really that simple. It really is. There's only one road in life. <laughs> and there's a city on each end, as John Bunyan taught us so very well. Right? There's the city of destruction, and then there's the celestial city. And you're headed in this direction or that direction. You're either on a pilgrimage leaving the city of destruction, headed to heaven, or you're not. Our second use, the Christian life is one of continuing faith. Abraham possessed and had to exercise faith all his life long. But too often in our day, 
Christians consider faith as merely the entrance to the Christian life. And that's it. I don't need faith after that. My dear friends, unless faith continues, it isn't saving faith. Because saving faith, biblical faith, the faith of Abraham, not only initiates salvation, but it's how we persevere in that salvation. Jesus said on more than one occasion, the one who endures to the end will be saved. True faith keeps trusting Christ and keeps relying on the promises of God. If there was a day that you believed in God once long ago, but you no longer do, why do you think Abraham is your spiritual father? Why, if you don't have faith, why is he your father in the faith? His faith continued, so yours must too. Yours must too. Thirdly and finally, the Christian life is one of active obedience. The Christian life is one of active obedience. As Jesus said, if Abraham is our father, we will do the works of Abraham. Another place we need to be like him. He means that we will obey the word of God out of new hearts. This is how we prove spiritual descent from Abraham. And this life of active obedience is, just like faith, necessary if we are to reach salvation. Hebrews 5.9, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, not to all who think nice thoughts about him, not to those who wish to escape hell and nothing else, to those who obey him. Hebrews 10.36, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, it's not that these works earn us heaven. They absolutely do not in any way do that. Right? It is the works of a living and dying Christ that earn us eternal life. But as I have told you before, obedience is a non-meritorious necessity for salvation. Let me say it again. Obedience is a non-meritorious necessity for salvation. Do you want to be saved? You have to obey God. Not that that obeying earns you anything with God. But it's necessary because it shows the reality of your faith. And it does other things as well. Our good works merit nothing with God, but they are required for many wise reasons. They show the genuineness of our faith. They remind us that holiness is the path to heaven. Good works are necessary because that's what glorifies God. You know something else obedience does? It preserves you from the sins that would otherwise destroy you. Now, if you have been a Christian for any length of time, and if you have any even modest amount of humility, you know very well that there is a devil and there are sins that could damn you 
if it was just you and them alone. If there was no Christ, if there was no God intervening, you can't stand up to him. Martin Luther was right in his great hymn, right? He, he's greater than us. We can't beat him. Oh, we don't have to. Why? The right man's on our side. What obedience does is when we follow Christ, it not only does all these other things, but it keeps us away <laughs> from that great danger. Obedience is as necessary in our spiritual lives as it was in Abraham. Think about his life the way we thought about uh, Noah's life last week. Remember what we said, if Noah claimed to believe, but refused to build an ark, did he really believe? Did his belief include the element of trust? No. Without an ark, would he have been saved or drowned? Drowned. <laughs> if Abraham claimed to believe God, but didn't leave either the false gods or Mesopotamia, would he have reached eternal life in God's city? He didn't believe in that God. And he, he didn't leave. He didn't go on pilgrimage. Would he reach heaven? No. No, he wouldn't reach heaven. James 2, 14 puts it rather baldly. What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Of course, the answer is no. No. Again, it's not that works save us. They absolutely don't, at least not our works. Jesus's do, but ours don't. But true faith is always accompanied by good works. That's because true faith comes from a new heart. And that new heart's been filled with the law of God, and it delights to do the law of God. That's why you as a new covenant Christian can love Psalm 119. That's not a strange Jewish chapter in the Bible. No. No, that's a, that's a believer's chapter in the Bible. We show our faith by our works. We don't show our faith by our profession of faith. I mean, I hope that's not too unkind. I don't mean it to be, but the fact that someone says, I'm a Christian doesn't actually prove they're a Christian, does it? It simply means that they believe they are. Now, they may well be right, and we ought to, we ought to hope and believe in the judgment of charity, etc. But, but if they live like the devil and say they love Christ, do you believe their words or do you believe their lives? Jesus made it very clear what the answer to that question is. You believe their lives. What's the judgment in that last day going to be based on? What we profess or what we did? Works every time. Works, works, works. We'll be judged by our works. Not because we're saved by our works, but because our works always reflect our hearts. They always reflect where our faith is placed. Amen. If it's placed in God, there'll be good works. If it's not, it, there won't be. This truth can help us in testing our own professions. Remember, the Bible urges us. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Well, here's one of the ways to do that. Your pastor doesn't want any of you who claim Christ to go to hell, of course. 
but it's not impossible for you to fool yourself and to fool me and, and others around you. Examine yourself. Here's one of the points of examination. Do I obey Jesus? Just really simply, do I obey Jesus? It can help us in evaluating our children when they say, Mom, Dad, I, I, I think I'm a Christian. I, I believe in Jesus now. Good, what a wonderful, what wonderful news. What encouraging words. But don't make the mistake that so many in our day do and take faith solely on the profession of faith. A person can, be, can say those words and be, you, you do know this, don't you, can be sincerely wrong. They're not trying to lie to you. <laughs> they can simply be mistaken. Well, one of the ways you can help is by evaluating not just their words, but their life. This is why when someone comes to our church in the very first week and says, we want to be members. Great. I'm encouraged. But you know what? You need to get to know us. We need to get to know you. Amen. Not because we're super judgmental, but, but, but because we've been tasked with Jesus Christ mm-hmm. <laughs> as a church with the keys of the kingdom. We open and shut the doors of salvation So to let you in when there's no evidence, that isn't obeying Christ. So we need to get to know you well enough for you to believe we're really Christians and we think there's a good chance you are too. I mean, why do you believe us just because we say it? There are lots of churches that are what the Apostle John called, what, synagogues of Satan? You don't want to be there if you're a real Christian. You may not need a lot of time, but you need some time. You need to get to know each other a little bit. So does your faith lead to acts of love? Well, if so, those are ways that should encourage and strengthen us as we review ourselves and our children and each other. And, and why do we do that? Because the Christian life of faith is always one of active obedience. Always. Again, not perfection. <laughs> oh my, oh my no. So far, far from it. But a sincere desire, a sincere working toward that, some kind of regular progress, okay? Um, like our father Abraham. Let's uh let's pray.